the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. This great nation will endure as it has endured. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. We're not, as some would have us believe, doomed to an inevitable decline. I do not believe in a fate that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. From every mountainside, let freedom ring, and if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. So let freedom ring. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. Here's your host, Bob Franz. All right. Yeah, we got we got chaos is what we got. We need to get rid of that echo. We need to get ourselves locked and loaded here because we've got uh, our program to run. It's nine minutes after the hour of nine o'clock. We've got to kill that echo immediately, please. And uh, we've got a lot. Here it is. Now we've got a lot of important things to do this morning. Welcome uh, to Always Right Radio on AM 1420. The answer, it's Wednesday, the 26th morning of the 10th month, the year of our Lord, 2022. 13 days away from either abandoning our nation in total and forever or reclaiming it in the name of justice and in the name of the Constitution and the Constitutional Republic that was built upon it. That is exactly what this is all about. Last night, we saw um, several examples of, of the stark choices that we have in this country with debates held in Pennsylvania and in New York and in Michigan for some very, very important offices. Not that the New York one will affect you directly, because that's not a Senate race, that's a gubernatorial race between Kathy Hochul and Lee Zeldin. 
But again, it's kind of like what I talked about uh, down in Florida, in the gubernatorial race between Ron DeSantis and Charlie Crist. Um, we're not, we don't live in Florida, but these are examples of the Democrat platform and policies that are indeed in effect on the national level, the federal level, and the Republican policies and platform and plans, if they are to, to be able to claim that. So the races in Michigan for governor and in Florida for governor and in um, New York for governor have an impact in that regard. They really do. And, of course, the Senate debate last night in Pennsylvania was, um, well, it was everything we expected it to be. It was proof positive that the Democrats are so desperate after two years after taking an elderly, senile, cognitively declining dementia patient and propping him up and helping him steal an election with 81 million votes that he did not get while campaigning not, while staying in his basement, they took this old man up there to puppet him around for four years, regardless of how it made him look, Regardless of how it makes this country feel, how awkward it is that he falls asleep on live television, how awkward it is that he stumbles and slurs and cannot remember simple words, how awkward it is that he contradicts himself in every other sentence. Just two years after that, they're taking a stroke patient and propping him up in Pennsylvania as the next senator from the Keystone State. And last night it was on display. Last night, listening to John Fetterman speaking on on television in Pennsylvania to all of the voters there um, made it very, very clear that he has brain damage. And they don't care. Who's they? The Democrats don't care. How humiliating that looked for him. How embarrassing. They don't care. As long as they'll, they'll use his cognitive issues, which are different than Biden's, which are age-related. Fetterman's are stroke-related, but they are still cognitive issues. They'll use them as a weapon. They'll use them quite literally as a tool to help get him into the United States Senate. He literally makes that point on the stage. John Fetterman wants you to know that he had a stroke, and then he wants you to feel really sorry for him, and he wants you to think of Mehmet Oz as a bully forever talking about John Fetterman's fitness to serve in the United States Senate because of that very extraordinary health situation. What qualifies you to be a U.S. Senator? You have 60 seconds. Hi. Good night, everybody. What? Hi. Good night, everybody. That's how Dr. or excuse me, John Fetterman started his uh, debate last night. Hi, good night, everybody. Um, I'm not laughing at it. I want you to understand it. This is real. And he also dropped the line about how, yes, I have had a stroke, and he never lets me forget about it. Talking about Dr. Ross. He'll they'll use his infirmity, his brain damage. As a weapon, as a tool to get sympathy votes. And if you look online, which I have been doing, 
I've been reading comments on Twitter underneath each of the gaffes, each of the embarrassing moments that were just so cringeworthy that people were squeezing their eyes shut and putting their hands on their cheeks and going, ooh, it's painful watching this guy. I have diehard conservative friends who watched that debate last night and texted me as it was going on about how painful it was to watch. They felt bad for the guy, and they're conservatives. He's a far-left, soft-on-crime, friendly-toward-murderers, anti-fracking, anti-energy, lunatic, racist, lunatic, um, and, and my conservative friends felt bad for him last night. That's how bad it got. And they and I, I looked on Twitter last night, and the left is all like, you people should be ashamed of yourselves, talking about conservatives, you know, daring to criticize this man. How would you like it if you were having something like this happen to you? And, you, you know, you could have served per, uh, uh, perfectly, you know, normally and fine and well if you hadn't had a medical emergency. How dare you judge him in such ways? They're using it to get sympathy votes, to get empathy votes for, for John Fetterman. Yeah, yeah, we should just support him because, you know what, it's like, it's kind of like, you know, it's, um, uh, what's the uh, Make-A-Wish Foundation? It's like the Make-A-Wish Foundation. This guy is in a very serious health situation. Lord only knows how much longer he's got to live. And, you know, it's his last wish to be in the United States Senate. How can you deny a brain-damaged man who, who suffered a stroke at the most inopportune time right during a presidential prime or, I mean, a, a Senate primary? Um, how, how can you deny him his final wish to go to the, the United States Senate? That's what they're doing. They are shameless. The fact that this man is on that stage last night was a complete embarrassment. The fact that he is the nominee for the Senate from the Democrat Party in Pennsylvania is even worse. They had time. They had time during the primaries. They could have said, this man is, 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 our, is our guy, but this man has had a medical emergency and his recovery is going to be such that it's not best that he be in the public eye trying to um, establish platform and policy on why and how he should be a senator uh, from the state of Pennsylvania. That's what they should have done. That's what they wouldn't do. So now they made their bed, and now they have to lie in it. And now they're trying to, again, use that uh, infirmity of his, that brain damage, to uh, say that he deserves votes out of sympathy. He deserves the opportunity to make his last wish come true, or his best wish come true. Dr. Oz was on point. He was crystal clear on the issues. He was right on all of the issues. Now, I have been critical of Dr. Oz as the nominee. I didn't support him. I supported McCormick in that, in that primary. Uh, and Dr. Oz has had a lot of liberal leanings that have been very, very clear. But he's saying the right things on this stage, and there is no question about it. He should be the next senator from Pennsylvania. In terms of who won the debate, instant polling, after the fact, 82% Oz, 18% Fetterman. Those people are probably deaf and uh, did not hear a word that was said. There's no other way you could say 18% of the people thought that John Fetterman won the debate when he was just so incredibly um, embarrassingly uh, inept. And that's the best way to say it is inept. It's not, and, and again, it is not cr- acknowledging somebody's infirmity is not bullying. That's the other thing I saw on Twitter. Um, it's not bullying to acknowledge somebody's infirmity. If I see someone um, get hit by a car and they're on a hospital bed and they've got all kinds of broken bones, 
Um, I am allowed to say, you know, man, I really feel really, really bad for that guy, but you know, he can't play in tomorrow's basketball game. What are you, what are you saying that for? It's not his fault he got hit. Well, you're right, but such as it is, he can't play in tomorrow's basketball game. Feel bad for it, but he's not capable of doing so. Well, that's John Fetterman. Sorry, he got hit by not a car, but a stroke. But it has caused brain damage. He can't think clearly. He can't speak clearly. He can't read and comprehend clearly. He can't serve in the United States Senate. Maybe next cycle. Maybe if he has some incredible um, recovery you know, plans and the doctors have a plan for him to, uh, to recover from this fully and he can regain full uh, you know, cognitive ability, then maybe six years later he can go after it again. Or maybe when the other seat comes open, he can go after it again. Uh, but for now, yeah, he's not capable of playing in tomorrow's game. That's not bullying. It's not bullying. It's an acknowledgement of something that happened. So we've got audio from Fetterman. We've got audio from Lee Zeldin and Kathy Hockle in New York. We've got audio from Gretchen Whitmer and Tudor Dixon in um, uh, in Michigan, and we're going to be going through all of it. Coming up on the program today, we've got guests to analyze these midterm elections, several of them. Uh, coming up in about a half, well, not half an hour anymore. Now we'll call about 15 minutes. Jim Renacci, former congressman uh, and uh, former gubernatorial candidate, will be with us to break down these races. We will talk at 10.35. Pastor Jeff is coming back. Pastor Jeff Toring of uh, Liberty ba- or, uh, excuse me, um, uh, Liberty Valley Church excuse me, um, is going to be joining us, and that will be happening at 10.35. And then, of course, at 11.10, we talk to our friend, the editor and founder of the uh, Ohio Press Network, Jack Windsor, will be with us to break down the J.D. Vance and Tim Ryan race, among other things. So we have a lot of very important things to talk about on the national level, on the Ohio level, on the local level, and I welcome you at 216-901-0945-888-281-1110. It's always Ray Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. Okay, it's 926, uh, Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. So let me uh, let me give you some of the latest, and we're going to talk about this in more depth with Jack Windsor. This is a report from the Ohio Press Network. The Real Clear Politics new average in the state of Ohio. We've been all watching very closely to see where the J.D. Vance-Tim Ryan race turned. Tim Ryan, of course, started running ads, hit pieces on J.D. Vance way back in May, right after the primary. He ran him in May. He ran him in June. He ran him in July. He ran him in August. He ran him in September. And he's run them throughout October. And he'll run it through the, through the first week of November. It's an amazing amount of money that they have spent, none of which was raised here in Ohio, or la- rather a very small percentage of, uh, of which was raised from Ohio voters. So much money pouring in because they know the importance of this seat that they think they can turn blue in the state of Ohio. So much of it coming from the Democratic uh, Senatorial Committee. Uh, so outside money. And they have just spent the last, you know, what, six months, seven months, or whatever it is. J.D. Vance played a measured game, took his time, uh, knew, it, Hugh Hewitt is always right about this. 
Money spent on television in the summer is wasted money. Nobody's going to remember those ads. Nobody's going to remember all of that nonsense. Uh, you start, you know, this around Labor Day. And that's exactly what uh, J.D. Vance did. And as soon as J.D. Vance started campaigning in earnest, particularly on the television side, he was always going around the state and talking to folks, talking to groups. But um, as soon as he started his own television campaign, all of the numbers started to shift. So we've all been waiting to see where it's going to turn, and now we have some answers. Real Clear Politics reports an unadjusted lead of two points for J.D. Vance in his race against Tim Ryan. Real Clear Politics measures a 7.1 point GOP underestimate in collected polls. I've talked to you about this before. Consequently, the RCP, Real Clear Politics, November 8th adjusted projection shows Vance up 8.1 points. And that's pretty astounding. And this has been a real metric that they have used and had success with, um, you know, in the past. I mean, through the, the past X number of, of uh, election cycles. Uh, real clear politics gives a 7.1 GOP underestimate because, again, GOP voters, for whatever reason, prefer to keep their own voting plans to themselves. They don't answer surveys. They very rarely will answer them if they're sent in emails, if they're sent in uh, text messages, or if if they get phone calls. They just won't do it. And so what RCP has done is realized what the difference usually is between the polls and the reality, and they say, okay, add 7.1. So that would mean an 8.1% lead for, or point lead for uh, J.D. Vance, which is outstanding, as you know. I mean, that would be a Trump-ish win in the state of Ohio. Trump won by eight-plus points in both of his elections in uh, in 16 and 20. A Siena College Spectrum News survey between October 14th and 19th showed Ryan Advance tied. It had an error, a margin of error of 5.1%. And they reported that voters preferred Republicans over Democrats to control Congress, however, 40 to 33%. Another large margin. Marist College reported Vance ahead of Ryan 46 to 45 between October 17th and October 20th with a 3.9% margin of error. So that one is a, is a lot closer. And again, all of these are considered in the real clear politics numbers. These are just some of the individual polls. And a survey by signal between October 18th and the 22nd, and I think that's the most recent one, shows JD leading by 3.6 points. Over uh, Tim Ryan, among 1,547 likely Ohio voters surveyed, people say they are undecided, totaled 9.8%. So if you take that 3.6% and you add the traditional 6 or 7-point margin uh, because of the underrepresentation of GOP uh, uh, voters surveyed, now you're looking at a J.D. Vance landslide. I'm not saying it's it's going to be, but I'm telling you the way the numbers look at the moment. The only thing that's going to make that happen for real is if you follow through on those intentions. 9.30, time for news. We'll come back and talk to Jim Renacci about this and more on Always Right Radio, AM 1420, The Answer. When Dr. Science is always left. Attacks on me, quite frankly, are attacks on science. You need Always Right with Dr. Bob France. You're really attacking not only Dr. Anthony Fauci, you're attacking science. On AM 1420, The Answer. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I don't know if I needed that intro right now. It's going to steer me right off course. I want to talk about election issues, but did you see any of Biden's nonsense yesterday? His, if you don't get the COVID boosters, you're putting yourself and other people at risk. He's back to that nonsense. 
I, I, I'm, I mean, honestly, this is the guy that just a few weeks ago went on national TV on 60 Minutes and declared that the pandemic is over. This is the guy right, who just got COVID, not once, but twice within a three-week span, who has been jabbed four times prior to yesterday, two originals and two boosts, and then he gets COVID, proving, as we have all known, that the shot does not prevent you from getting it or spreading it. And now he's on TV pulling this again. shot each year will be all they need. And if you get it, you're protected. And if you don't, you're putting yourself and other people on necessary risk. How can he say those things? How can he say that? He literally is living proof. So is Jill Biden. So is Anthony Fauci. So is the CEO of Pfizer. So is Rochelle Walensky at the CDC. Every one of them has had multiple jabs and boosts, and every single one of them got COVID. How can he dare tell the people, get your shots, and you'll be protected? You're lying. And I have had just about enough of that garbage. But you know what? If he keeps it up, maybe that's one of the reasons why the Republicans are about to decimate the Democrat Party and their control of Congress. Joining us now to talk about that and a little more uh, is a former Congressman Jim Renacci. He is also a former gubernatorial candidate for the Republican Party. Congressman, good to have you back. How are you, sir? Good morning, Bob. Doing well. How are you? I'm okay. Can you make any sense? I want to talk to you about the midterms. That's why we're here. We're going to talk about the importance of getting J.D. elected, the importance of getting Max Miller elected, the importance of getting the right people in the Ohio Supreme Court and so forth. But can you make heads or tails? I mean, didn't this guy, I'm not imagining it, right? He said the pandemic was over just about um, uh, three, four weeks ago on TV. And then yesterday he says, we're in the middle of a national health emergency. Which is Which one is it? Well, the good thing about uh, President Biden, he's the greatest asset for Republicans. And it's one of the reasons why the generic ballot, I mean, I was looking at numbers uh, over the last couple of months and, and paying attention to what's going on. But if you think about it, in, in 2018, the generic ballot was Democrat plus eight. Democrat plus eight, that's a big number. In, in 2020, the uh, generic ballot was Democrat plus three. And today, the generic ballot averages Republican plus three. So we have moved uh, 11 points in the right direction because of President Biden. And, and it's one of the reasons why Republicans are going to do well. Uh, whenever the generic ballot, wherever, whenever the tailwind is behind you, it makes it much easier to push across the finish line on election day. Yeah, and you know, I've heard uh, a couple of other pretty bright people. Uh, Peter Kirstenau is one, and Hugh Hewitt is the other. They've got the more um, extrapolated numbers when it comes to to the generic ballot because of Republican underrepresentation in those polls. Um, they always consider adding three uh they say you add three to whatever the republican number is because either they're not being surveyed intentionally in a lot of cases but in a lot of other cases republicans more so than democrats don't like to tell people how they're voting and they don't answer those surveys they don't answer those calls uh they don't respond to those texts or emails asking what their uh, voting preference is so if you really look at it according to what hugh and pete were talking about on saturday night at our event you were looking at a uh, at a generic ballot of plus six for the Republicans, which is exactly what it ought to be. Yeah, and there's no doubt there are people polling. I don't trust any polls anymore. Um, you know, I saw what happened in the governor's race when people cross over. So I'm talking about in the primary. So in the end, these races are all going to be close. I mean, I was looking at uh, Senate races. You have uh, 
almost seven races in the Senate that are all under plus or minus two points, um, which means that it's all about turnout. And, uh, you know, you've been talking about that on your show for weeks. It's about people getting out to vote. If people do not get out and vote, uh, these races could go either way, including J.D. Vance's race. I mean, his is still, his average is a plus two. Um, and I saw one that just said he's a plus four. But I also saw two on Monday that says he's at a tie. So there are plenty of polls out there that have the Ohio race very tight, too. Although I think Ohio is going to lean Republican already. It's got the generic ballot behind it. Uh, J.D. Should do, all, should do well, but it's going to come down to people getting out and voting. Well, there's no question, and that's one of the reasons why I'm going out and speaking to as many groups as I can. We had our big Battlegrounds Talkers Tour thing on, on Saturday as well because we need to energize the voting base. One thing we cannot do is take for granted, and I know a lot of people tend to do that, especially because, again, you and I talk about this all the time. Even though the quality of Republican isn't always top-notch, we are an overwhelmingly red Republican state. Looking at the General Assembly, looking at the uh, statewide offices, looking at um, um, uh, the last two presidential elections that Trump won by eight points plus. Um, it should be a very reliable red state win for, for J.D., but if we take it for granted that, yeah, it's always going to be red and it's always going to be easy, and people just say, uh, I was going to go early vote, but I kind of forgot, and then the line is a little bit too long on Election Day, he's fine, he's going to win, the numbers say he's going to win. If that kind of stuff happens, Congressman, that's when we lose. We, that apathy and that taking for granted that we're going to be okay. Well, absolutely. And, and again, to win, you have to get the Republicans voting for it, but you also have to get the independents. We can never forget that in this state, 59% of the voters are independents, and they are not paying attention to Republicans. They are not paying attention to Democrats. They've decided they're, they're walking away from the party, but they are paying attention to issues like inflation, crime, and illegal immigration, which are the three top issues. And those are the things that are going to drive the independents uh, to the polls, and uh, those are the ones that will make a decision. So, um, yes, Republicans got to get out and vote, but independents will drive Ohio elections. And that's why I always say Ohio's not a red state because it can swing in any direction depending on what independents um, believe or decide. And uh, it's one of the reasons why I've said all along the Republican Party needs to get back those independents because we've lost so many independents over the last eight years that have uh, that were Republicans at one point in time and now are independents. We got to get those back into the fold. We're talking to Jim Renacy, former uh, gubernatorial candidate, former um, sen- or excuse me, uh, 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 a representative, uh, and congressman. Tell me how an independent, the people you just described, if the three issues, the biggest issues for them are indeed inflation, crime, and immigration, the border. How can any independent possibly justify sliding toward the Democrat, considering that Tim Ryan opposes border security, opposes the, uh, um, uh, or supports the energy policies, rather, of the Biden administration that has brought us inflation and high gas prices and, and beyond? And, you know, has been very famously, uh, when he was running for president, announced that he is uh, supportive of bail reform. He doesn't believe there should be cash bail, that criminals who commit terrible crimes should be allowed to be out while they await their trials, intimidating witnesses and putting the public in danger. I mean, if you're an independent and you look at those three issues, how do you how do you say, yeah, I'm I'm for the border, I'm for the I'm for the open border, and I'm for the higher gas prices, and I'm for the soft on crime policies, right? 
Well, and again, because there's one issue that trumps all three of those, and it's likability. And that's the real issue. So one thing I've learned, and again, uh, Bob, as, as a business guy for 35 years who got into politics, I've learned my lesson over the years. And one thing is likability trumps all those. So people will end up voting for somebody they like. Uh, they shake their hand. They see them. They meet them for the first time. Um, we saw that without, without really looking at their background. And we saw that in, we see that in so many races. We saw it in the, in the primary, in the governor's primary, that some guy that, uh, had no, nobody was checking on his background experience, which is now coming out. They liked him because they saw him. They met him. He had, there was a likability factor. And I can tell you when it comes to JD, um, I've had Republican, big donor Republicans, in the Cleveland area say to me, I'm voting for Tim Ryan because I met both of them and I like Tim Ryan better. Um, and I've explained the, the differences, but it still comes down to that likability factor. So that's the answer to your question. People will vote for somebody they like, even though their differences, uh, they may have differences in uh, whether it's border security, whether it's inflation, whatever. Another example I can give you, Bob, is when I was traveling the state in 2018, I had more Republicans say, Renee, I love you, I love your opinions, but I actually like Sherrod Brown. And even though he doesn't vote my way, I just actually like him. And that's what, um, that's the issue that J.D. will have to overcome. I think he's going to be able to do it, again, with a plus three, plus five, plus six, whatever number you want to use, as long as it's a plus Republican generic ballot, that's positive where in 18, it was a plus eight Democrat ballot, which uh, the, the headwinds are much, much tougher. So it's that likability factor. You know, it's interesting um, that you that you phrase it that way, because I would point to President Trump as, as being maybe the antithesis of that. Um, there were a ton of people who did not like him when he ran in 2016. He won anyway because the policies he was espousing uh, spoke to a lot of people. Uh, but his personality, his gruff exterior, his you know narcissism and other things like that got in the way. I don't see a lot of that kind of stuff in J.D. Vance. I see, you know, matter of fact, the more that I have spoken to him over the course of the last ten months since the the primary you know season began, and then of course the primary in uh, in uh, May, um, the more I talk to him, the more I come to like him, the more likable he is to me. Um, but I, but I would hope that people are looking at results. And and platforms much more than likability. Certainly, the platform that President Trump adopted, I think, is what got him elected. And then he, he followed through by doing uh, everything that he promised he would while he was there. Well, the only thing I would disagree with you on is that I still remember the day I was having dinner with Kelly Conway, who, of course, ran President Trump's campaign at the end. Yeah. And he and she told me, and this was in 2018. She said, "I kept telling the president because President Trump, at that time, candidate Trump." was saying, you know, I want to tell people about me. I want to tell people. And she said, listen, she said, you're running against somebody who people dislike. You don't, it's, it, your job is to make sure people continue to dislike her and not, because right now they like you better than her, but you're both disliked. And I thought that was interesting because. Good point. She, and, was very hated. Yeah. she was very hated, in fact, by anybody who wasn't a hardcore leftist. Yeah. So, so Trump actually, what she was telling him is, Trump, you're going to win because you're liked better, not because you're better. So, um, again, another interesting comparison that she was hated so bad. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's where the likability factor does come in. 
Let me bring you to last night on that same subject, since you brought up the likability thing. There are a lot of people who watched uh, uh, John Fetterman last night in the Pennsylvania debate get completely destroyed because he cannot communicate. I feel like even if he hadn't had the stroke, he is extraordinarily unlikable because of his very strange fondness for murderers. Uh, he has said on countless occasions he wants to empty Pennsylvania's prisons and end life uh, lifetime sentences without parole, which, of course, are murderers. He wants them to be set free. It's bizarre. But the fact that he does have the infirmity from the stroke is making a lot of people like him out of sympathy or empathy uh, and just feeling bad for him. Do you think that's going to play a factor in how this race comes out? It's funny you said that because I've been reading that same thing this morning, and, and I 100% agree. Look, that's another factor. Um, if we elected people based on qualifications, background, experience, what they've done in their personal life, probably none of the people in office today would be in office. It's the problem. It's, the, it's, the, it's never the, the person who's more qualified. It's the person who's more likable. And in this case, uh, Fetterman is going to get the sympathy vote. I, uh, you know, and, and I would agree. There are people who say, you know, I, I feel sorry for him. And I give him credit for being up there running and um, we got to give him a chance. That's that's the scary thing um, about politics and elections. People do not vote for. He is clearly not qualified. And I'm not saying Oz is the greatest candidate either, but Oz is clearly more qualified than Fetterman. And and yet the sympathy vote may pull that race uh, his way. Yeah, it is bizarre that he's even within striking distance. In fact, he has led that race most of the summer and into the early fall. Just recently, has Oz kind of taken a lead in some of the surveys there, uh, and it's just bizarre. Like I said, his record is is uh, is astoundingly bad. His his back and forth, like last night on fracking, he has been opposed to fracking uh, his entire career when he was a mayor, as lieutenant governor. Then he gets on a stage last night and says, "I'm for fracking, but I don't, I don't, I'm I'm for." It's just so all over the place. Uh, it's hard to understand how he's even close to uh, uh, to uh, Doctor Oz. So so Jim Renacci. As you look bigger picture, you know, you got Blake Masters in Arizona. You've got obviously this race. You've got the Fetterman race. You've got some uh, very important races around the country. How do you see it shaping up right now? And, and you know, we're, what, 13 days away. Um, if you had to look at your crystal ball, how many seats do Republicans have in the Senate after November 8th? Well, that's interesting because I think it's a coin toss. I do think that, thank goodness, the, the Republican win uh, is behind us and the generic ballot is behind us. But I still don't think, uh, best case, it's 5248. Uh, worst case, it's, uh, you know, 5149 Democrats. But um, I think the Republicans have a chance of being up one, which I got to tell you, Bob, the, the biggest problem, one of the reasons why I left Washington is being up one is nothing. I mean, all that does is give you, uh, you know, the chairmanships. But it doesn't give you the power to do anything. It's kind of like in the House of Representatives. One of the reasons why I left is we were up 29, and we couldn't get anything done. And, and the House, they're going to be lucky. I was talking to the NRCC chairman last couple of weeks. They're going to be lucky to be up, you know, nine or ten seats. i got to tell you, that's a disaster. That's a disaster. Now, it's great to say we control the House and we control the Senate. But here's the problem, and I've said this already, because when you get a margin that low, of of majority ship you can't get things done and when you can't get things done 
things, the people turn on you. It's why the generic ballot went from Democrat eight to Republican plus three is because they didn't like what the Democrats were doing. And the Republicans, you know, they're going to have their problems, too, with such a short margin in the majority. Now, I do believe we get the majority in the House. I do feel really confident we get the majority in the Senate. But I got to tell you, Bob, I don't feel real confident we get much done in the next couple of years because it's not a large enough majority to move the ball. And then you got a Democrat um, president as well. But remember, I think in 2024, we get a Republican president. But we had that before, too. That's the frustration for me. We had the House. We had the Senate. We had the Republican presidency. And we still got very little accomplished with the small margins we have, which is one of the biggest problems we have in our country because we don't get enough accomplished with the small majorities we have. Interesting. Uh, interesting look at it. Uh, I, th- I thought we got a hell of a lot accomplished uh, in, in, in the Trump presidency, particularly in those first two years with the Republican majority, including uh, across-the-board tax cuts, including you know, getting out of the, you know, the Iran deal and getting out of the, you know, the Paris Climate Accords, uh, uh, expanding uh, 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 energy fracking and drilling uh, into, uh, into Anwar and into the Gulf. All of the things that led to record low, uh, or excuse me, uh, yeah, record low unemployment and uh, uh, you know, super low gas prices and so forth. I thought we got quite a bit done in those first two years. And I think that's what a lot of people are going to remember. And I hope that you're wrong that it's, uh, you know, you're talking about nine or 10. I think I'll be shocked if it's less than 20 on the House side. And I would be not surprised if it's, uh, if it's around 30, to be honest with you. But, um, uh, you, well, obviously wait a, minute, talking remember, to a lot of insiders. Yeah. Yeah. We're down five. So if you, even if you get 19, you're plus 15. So remember, that's the, that's the reason I say the majority will be small. But, no, I get way, that. I'm, I'm thinking plus yeah. 25, though, and then and then you know then being at plus 20. I think gaining 25 and then being up plus 20, I think, is very reasonable. I'd be really stunned if it's less than that. But I'll give you the last word. Go ahead. I was going to say. Remember, President Trump got a lot accomplished, but all those things got reversed. I'm talking about Congress getting things accomplished. And remember, we did get a tax cut passed, but we got it done through reconciliation. And because it was done through recon- re- reconciliation, it expires. Most of those things expire at the end of this year because we didn't get it done the right way. That's my biggest concern. Getting it done the right way is having Congress approve, vote it, and change the law. And that's what's very difficult when you don't have a large majority. I do give President Trump a lot of credit for the Iran deal. And all that. Remember, he did that single-handedly as president. We didn't do it as Congress. Yeah, well, you know, all you have to do, though, I think we found out this week, is if you don't get it done legislatively, just lie and say that you do. That's what Joe Biden said about student loan forgiveness. He said, I got it passed by a vote or two. It was never never voted on. It was never a bill. It was always an executive order. But he sat there on TV and said, yeah, I got it passed by a vote or two. Uh, So you don't have to actually get it done legislatively. Just pretend you did and tell everybody otherwise. Well, well, that's true. But again, the biggest problem with executive orders, they get reversed as soon as another president comes in. So we got to we got to get something accomplished long term. And let's not forget the debt ceiling. The debt just crossed 30 trillion dollars. That's a scary number. Nobody wants to talk about. And that's been going on for a lot of years. Yeah, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. Jim Renacci, former congressman, former gubernatorial candidate, always a pleasure. Thank you for your insight and analysis, and uh, cross your fingers that we have a bigger number on November 8th. Thank you, Bob. You have a great day. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it, as always. 9.58, we'll take a time out here. We'll come back after the news. Always Right Radio, AM 1420, The Answer.
you and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Welcome to Always Right Radio with Bob France on AM 1420. The answer. Hour number two underway now. Ten minutes after ten o'clock on Always Right Radio. It's a Wednesday, the 26th morning of the 10th month of the year of our Lord, 2022. So uh, thanks to Jim Renacci for coming on. Boy, i got to tell you, um, Mr. Renacci has a lot more experience. He has run and won numerous races. He has been uh, you know, at the forefront of the uh, Republican and conservative movement in Medina County, uh, one of the leaders in Ohio. And uh, he has got some cynicism going. He has got some cynicism going. He is not super confident in J.D. Vance's chances of winning, talking about platforms being taken over by, or overtaken, rather, by likability among some of the people he talks to, voters who say they're going to vote for Tim Ryan despite the Democrat catastrophe that is unfolding before our very eyes over the last 21 months. Uh, He has a belief that only maybe as many as nine uh, vote advantage for the Republican Party in the House after November 8th. And he said, best case scenario, 52, which would be a fine scenario for me in the Senate. Uh, but worst case scenario, 51, 49 in favor of the Democrats. Uh, and he just doesn't seem to have a whole ton of, uh, of belief that, uh, that things are going to break our way. You know, the tsunami that we talk about, the tsunami, uh, and it's kind of a, it's been kind of a, uh, I don't want to say back and forth, but it's been kind of a, changing a shifting pattern over the course of the last several months for most of the early part of the summer it was all tsunami 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 the democrats are 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 going to lose based on inflation based on the gdp based on uh the border based on crime and so forth based on uh, overdose deaths and all the things that they're responsible for and then the the abortion thing hit uh, you know, and the overturning of Roe versus Wade, the Dobbs decision, and all of a sudden Democrats were going to rally over the right to kill babies, and that's what's going to bring them out, and that's going to end any hope of a Republican tsunami. But that was very short-lived, and the surveys that are being conducted around the country show that that while it is still a top abortion, or excuse me, a top issue abortion is for Democrats, it is not enough to drive them over the top of all of the other issues that Democrats are losing on. And now the talk is back about a tsunami. It's going to be an overwhelming victory, maybe as many as 53, 54 seats in the Senate, and a good 30 to 35 seat advantage in the House. But Jim Renacci thinks differently. So I welcome your thoughts at 216-901-0945. He said maybe nine, but it wouldn't be enough to get anything done on the House side, and maybe a one or two seat advantage on the Senate side, and uh, got to look to 2024 and get a Republican president. So it's a it's a... It's a sobering look. I'll call it that. Rather than cynical, I'll say it's a sobering look. And you know what? Maybe that's what we need. As I said to Mr. Renacci in the early part of our conversation, when we take for granted votes for Republicans in this state, when we just assume victory, 
we lose. If we don't go out there and fight for every vote and fight to bring more people around to help un- help them understand and learn more about our Senate candidate so that it becomes more and more uh, uh, of a lock rather than a question mark, um, if we don't rally people within our social circles, our social media circles, our work circles, you know, our neighbors, our family, whatever the case might be, if we don't bring people around and work for every single vote, maybe things won't go our way. Maybe maybe Jim and AC will be right and, uh, you know, that it's, a, it's going to be a tough road to hoe. So I hope that's not the case. I hope we're not going to take it for granted. I hope we're not going to just assume that we have everything in the bag, that the tidal wave is coming, the tsunami is coming, because if it isn't, if we do assume that, it won't. And Jim Renacci will be looking at it and saying, see, I tried to warn everybody, and he may be right. We're going to talk to uh, Pastor Jeff Toring uh, coming up at uh, 1035. Looking forward to that conversation. We will also talk about the elections. But before I do that, I want to do this in this this portion of the show. Over the course of the last few uh, weeks, particularly leading up to the vote in the Ohio Board of Education about a resolution put forth by board member uh, Brendan Shea uh, about Title IX changes. And these, of course, are the Biden bow. This is the Biden bow uh, to the radical extremist grooming, recruiting, LGBTQ-driven left uh, Biden is proposing uh, the, the Title IX changes which would add gender identity or personal feelings to protection on the basis of sex. Title IX, of course, was extraordinarily important for women to give them equal access and protection um, in competitive circles and in privacy spaces when it comes to school and, uh, and opportunities. And for 50 years, it has worked wonders. It has gotten so many more girls and women into sports and into opportunities that they didn't have before. Well, now they're trying to erase that, Biden is, by saying, you don't actually have to be a girl to get those protections, you know. If you just say that you are or say that you're half a girl and half a boy or whatever, you're going to get the same protections. It's dangerous. It's disgusting. uh, It cannot be allowed. So over the course of this period of time, I've been very critical of two people for not doing something about it. Governor Mike DeWine and Attorney General Dave Yost. I've said, why are they not speaking out against this change? Why are they not speaking out against Title IX changes? Why are they not speaking out in support of Brendan Shea's resolution? Maybe it could influence a few of the board members who are going to vote on that to tell the uh, federal government to go pound salt. We're not changing Title IX and putting girls in jeopardy. And we're not going to erase the category of women by saying whatever you feel like is a woman and whatever you feel like is a girl. And thus watch them lose their opportunities for, for, uh, for competition, for potentially scholarships on the athletic fields and courts. We're not going to do that. Why won't Mike DeWine say something? Mike DeWine said something in 2016 back when he was the Attorney General. He wrote a letter to uh, the Obama administration and told them uh, that Ohio will not be kowtowing to some federal push to allow boys into girls' bathrooms and locker rooms and shower rooms. We're not going to be doing that. We're not going to be bullied by the federal government and this ridiculous policy of theirs, which was strong and good and right. And now, as an opportunity as governor to reiterate that and to double down on that, he won't. And then I said the same thing about where's our attorney general? 
Dave Yost, why hasn't he spoken out? Well, yesterday, last night to be precise, I was sent a letter that was written by the Attorney General Dave Yost addressing this very issue. And it was dated September 12th, a month and a half ago, in plenty of time to perhaps influence, if not just lead the discussion among Ohio Board of Education members about what they can do to protect Ohio's girls and women, young and young students, middle school students, high school students, college students, uh, from this radical Title IX change. Why did, you know, why are we just now finding out about this? This was done in plenty of time. Well, come to find out he sent this letter, according to what I'm reading, to the Secretary of Education in D.C., Miguel Cardona. But to my knowledge, it hasn't gone to anybody in Ohio. Ohio legislators, members of the General Assembly, members of the Ohio Board of Education. To my knowledge, this is the first time it's come up, because I have been saying, where's Dave Yost? Where's Dave Yost? Where's Mike DeWine? Why aren't they doing something to say, no, we won't be bullied by the federal government at the, at the risk, by the way, and you know, you know the story by now. Obama, or excuse me, Obama, Biden's uh, federal government has said if states don't adopt the changes to Title IX, they'll, they'll let the poor kids in those states starve. No, literally. They will withhold funds that are used for reduced price and free lunches for Ohio's poor students. They'll withhold the federal funds for that if we don't acknowledge, uh, you know, boys who say they're girls because they put on a little bit of makeup, and now they get to go into the shower room with real girls. If we don't go along with that, the poor kids starve. That's literally what the Biden administration is doing. Why aren't our leaders speaking out? So this letter that's 35, 33 pages long from Dave Yost to Miguel Cardona at the Department of Education says exactly what it needs to say. But nobody knew about it. Now, we're going to reach out to Attorney General Yost, who, of course, has his own reelection to deal with here. And maybe that's why this wasn't sent to Ohio Ohio representation, Ohio representatives um, and board members. I don't know. I don't know if he's worried that this might actually harm his chances of reelection. I know that's why Mike Nospine is, uh, uh, is not speaking out on this. But this letter is terrific. It underscores all of the most important points. Eliminating long-standing sex-based distinctions threatens to hinder the process of expanding girls' opportunities in sports. Today we take for granted, he writes, that women will have athletic and educational opportunities on par with men. But we ought not forget that women obtained this parity in a system that drew sex-based classifications. Chesterton reminds us not to clear... Away a fence just because we cannot see its point. Even if a fence doesn't seem to have a reason, sometimes all that means is we need to look more carefully for the reason it was built in the first place. The department is embarking on a nationwide experiment in eliminating sex-based distinctions without adequately considering why those distinctions were drawn in the first place. It's a great line. It's a great saying. Again, this is, this is a 33-page letter that I think everybody should read. And it should have been sent directly to every board member when they were considering Brendan Shea's resolution, saying, look, the Attorney General agrees we have to stop this. We can't let this happen to Ohio's girls and women. But again, to my knowledge, we're going to talk to Jack Windsor at 1110 about this. To my knowledge, 
Nobody else saw this. I'm just now finding out about its existence. So did Jack Windsor yesterday. Uh, the good people at Ohio Value Voters got a hold of it. Um, but it was only sent to Miguel Cardona, again, to my knowledge. The nationwide nature, writes Dave Yost, the Attorney General, the nationwide nature of Title IX makes the department's conduct especially improper. The states will always protect the rights of gay and transgender Americans. Those individuals have the same inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as everyone else. But precisely because the states take seriously their obligation to protect all their citizens, there is a need to assume that the trade-offs posed by sex-segregated spaces are best best assessed on on a nationwide level. As with many difficult issues, it may well be that the best solutions vary from place to place. The citizens of Utah and Massachusetts might have different views on the need to place men and women in different living quarters. Texans and New Yorkers may not see eye to eye on the wisdom of letting biological males play contact sports like wrestling against biological females. A healthy society should have free reign to debate these issues. A mark of a healthy society, it might even be said, is that it remains relentlessly ill at ease about the ethical, moral, medical, liberty, and faith-based considerations that inform these debates. If nothing else, state experimentation point experimentation may point the way to a better solution, a solution that no one will ever find if the states are prohibited from looking. So there's a lot of ground there. Um, and by the way, I disagree with a little bit of what he wrote in that sec- section. I do agree the states need to be able to do this on their own. Obviously, I guess what I disagree with is I hope that nobody from Texas or New York or Massachusetts or Utah thinks that men and women should be in the same showers, that men and women should be in the same quarters where privacy is demanded, that men and women should play on the same competitive athletic fields. I don't. I would hope that no states uh, believe that to be true. But he's right when he said it is, it is and does need to be up to the states to figure that out for themselves. So... Just a, just an update. We'll get more details on this. Jack Windsor is going to give us his opinion coming up at 1110 this morning. But I welcome your thoughts as well. 2169. And I wonder why, again, why Dave Yost? And we got to reach out. we got to reach out to the AG. Why was this not made public? Why wasn't this letter copied to the media? Why wasn't this copied to the Cleveland Plain Dealer, Cincinnati Inquirer, Columbus Dispatch, Ohio Press Network. Why wasn't this sent to the media so that people know where the AG uh, uh, stands in the state of Ohio? I would like to have known that. I think this could have uh, this could have played a role in the discussions during the Ohio Board of Education meetings just a couple of weeks ago. Okay, it's ten twenty four. Quick time out. Right back. Always right. Radio AM fourteen twenty. The answer. Chief. The best way to get something done, if you, if it holds near and dear to you, that you uh, um, like to be able to. Anyway. Always right with Bob France. And now I'm off to Texas. On AM 1420, the answer. True international average of pressure. You know, I didn't, I didn't know that I could see another politician on a stage. Stumble and bumble and fumble and mumble quite as much as Joe Biden did until I saw John Fetterman last night. 
And I want to say it again because everybody needs to know that it's not being ableist. It's not making fun of somebody's infirmity. It is not uh, bullying. It is none of the above. It is simply pointing out the infirmity and recognizing that he cannot serve. When you cannot speak and you cannot read and you cannot process, formulate thoughts, convert them into important uh, expressions in one way or another, you cannot serve in the United States Senate. That's not bullying. Like I said, that's not picking on somebody because of their disability because he had a stroke. It's recognizing they had a, that he had a stroke and that it may be contributing to his inability to do what needs to be done as a United States senator. You know the funny part about it is? The funny part about it is, on Twitter last night, as I was following along, I don't do Twitter anymore. I don't have an account. I just follow it. Um, I just have a, a, you know, I don't post. But I do need to follow what some people are saying. And the left responses to all of Fetterman's verbal miscues and embarrassing gaffes uh, on the stage last night. They were all like, why are you people saying that? And there were, I mean, I'm talking about these are people who are of note. These aren't just ba- mama basement dwellers. There are people with 300, 400,000 followers, leftist journalists, among others, saying probably one of the easiest jobs in America. All you have to do is vote yay or nay. Somebody else does all the work. You just vote yay or nay. And I'm just astounded that these are people that are taken seriously, many of them blue check marks. John Fetterman is capable of saying yay or nay. Oh, my goodness. Is John Fetterman capable of processing information to decide on whether or not he wants to vote yay or nay on something that is going to impact 330 million American people? Is John Fetterman capable with his infirmity and his cognitive issues um, largely attributed to his stroke? Is he capable of asking questions of a witness in a committee testimony? Is he capable of understanding what the witness is responding? Is he capable of participating in the drafting of bills, in understanding bill? I mean, it's astounding to me. They're just saying all they have to do is vote. Quit trying to say he can't do the job. You can't do the job. Yeah. Oh, my goodness, this is something. But anyway, yeah, he made Joe he made Joe Biden look and sound like uh, you know Shakespeare, uh, like a statesman. It's, it was really a, an embarrassing thing. Let's uh, bring in Pastor Jeff Tarring. Pastor Jeff uh, is the pastor at Liberty Valley Church in Northfield, and uh, he's going to be hosting us for a special event coming up in November that I'm going to talk about in a moment. But first, uh, let's welcome him to talk about these midterms. Pastor Jeff, good morning. How are you? Good morning. How are you, Bob? I'm good, sir. Thank you so much. So before we get into any of the... uh, Yeah, of course. It's a pleasure. I always enjoy talking to you. Before we get into some of the stuff... um, I know people, this is always a debate, and you and I kind of talk about it almost every time I have you on the radio, but I think for those who haven't heard it, we need to, you know, underscore it. Um, Some people believe that politics is best left out of the pulpit. Some people are angry when their pastors or their priests or their rabbis don't address current events and situations that affect the faithful in the pulpit. You clearly do. You are are one who believes in... uh, discussing these matters in sermons, and obviously you come on the radio to do it. So can you explain your position as to why we should be mixing you know, the politics of the day with our faith leaders? Yeah, sure. First of all, most of the churches are not contributing to this because most of them are lukewarm in general. So if the preachers and pastors are 
more concerned with tea parties and coffee shops and uh, that kind of thing rather than a, a country that is failing or righteousness that is decreasing, um, then they're, they're, they're not going to want to rock the, uh, the boat or the apple cart. But when you, when you look and see that um, righteousness exalts the nation and that our principles and our founding fathers had a lot to do with churches. I mean, even during the Revolution, we had armaments and munitions hidden beneath a pulpit of one of the churches. That's how involved they used to be, and that was what was steering the country. And so now we, we have no one really at the helm uh, to guide these things. So I, we feel that that, that that just needs to be, uh, the vacuum needs to be filled. Yeah, I think that's a very, very good answer and a very good argument as to why you should be, uh, you know, kind of leading and guiding for those who can't find uh, guidance anywhere else uh, that they can trust. And they do put their, their trust oftentimes in their, in their faith leaders, their pastors and so forth. So good for you. And that's, uh, I'm glad to know that you do that. Uh, that's why I love hearing your sermons whenever they're running on our program or on our station every day. Uh, any clips of 60 minute uh, or 60 second clips rather of your sermons are just terrific. So having said all of that, um, I don't know if you want to talk about individual races, but let's talk about this first from um, the broader scope of things. Um, if you look at the platforms of the generic uh, Democrat uh, party in these House and Senate races, and gubernatorial races too, and you look at the platform and the policies being espoused by the generic Republicans, does one or the other side... Um, let me rephrase. How do the two sides impact our culture and the well-being of, of, of the citizens of this country, if you can do it on a generic level? Right. Well, I appreciate that, that even that thought, the generic level. And, and that's part of the problem. That's why the culture is just on a decrease slowly. Because if you leave it in a generic term, the default will always be degeneration. It, it's just natural for things to fall rather than to rise. You know, right, we have gravity. It's easier to pull a man into a hole than it is to pull a man out of the hole. It's much more work. It's much more sweat. And so the, the way that you use it as generic, that is really what the problem is. And it, it's come down to now where, you you know, we have the term uniparty where we can barely tell they're so generic. You, you, we have a hard time telling between a Republican and a Democrat, and and this isn't this isn't new. Um, you know, if if you look historically speaking, um, you have John Adams and Sam Adams, so you know they're related. But John Adams was 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 pretty generic um, in, in in his day, where Sam Adams was this loudmouth firebrand that was the pusher. And, in fact, John Adams would complain about Thomas Jefferson in the early days because Jefferson was so easygoing and Ben Franklin was mild-mannered and easygoing. But it was the Sam Adams and the Thomas Paines that were the loud pushers. And so they would push the generic people uh, on onto different policies and push them and, and, and almost instigate them into doing certain things. And so that's what we have going with the political leaders now it's we can't even tell which side of the road are you on i mean we have this uh, you know rhino term that we use now or the uniparty term that we use now and that happens even our in our local elections right so i, I just spoke the other day with dave yost our attorney general 
And, you know, sounds like a good guy. He, you know, he's a Christian, says he reads his Bible every morning, and, and I don't doubt that. Mm-hmm. But when it comes down to uh, bringing charges against the Hudson issue, you remember, with the child porn that was being distributed in the schools? Sure. We can't touch that. That's that's just too hot. And so, like you're, like you're saying, with being generic, we, that, that's just too hot. We, we won't even go there. And so many of them are like that. I spoke with Keith Faber, our auditor, concerning, you know, the, the corruption with the COVID in the hospitals, and it's too hot. I, I have many conversations with Frank LaRose, and I like Frank. I think Frank's a good guy. He did a great job in trying to fight against having multiple drop boxes all over, right? But when it comes to being hot and being out there and making sure election integrity, it, it's, that's just too hot too general. And so that's that's what we're seeing. We're, we're seeing this generic, or what the Bible calls lukewarm water coming down this aqueduct, and it's just ruining the country and bringing it down slowly, 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 till finally uh, we're, we're wondering, how did we even get here? We're talking to Pastor Jeff Toring from Liberty Valley Church in Northfield um, as we talk about the midterm races and the future of the country. I'm, I'm, I'm I'm a little disheartened to hear what you're saying, and the reason why is because I agree with you. Um, these leaders need to not be lukewarm. They need to be hot. They need to take on the issues that are hot, the issues that are going to most impact our culture and our country and our and our communities and our daily existence. Um, and the fact that they won't take some of those things on, like you said in Hudson, and the fact that, you know, it's, I was just having a segment, uh, last segment, I just got wind yesterday, I got a look at a 33-page letter that Dave Yost wrote, essentially opposing the department, uh, the Federal Department of Education's uh, plans to alter and change Title IX to include uh, gender identity along with real women. And right. it was it was dated September 12th. And I thought, why are we just now seeing this? He sent it to the Department of Education, Secretary Cardona, but not to the media in Ohio, not to the General Assembly, not to the Ohio Board of Education members who could have made use of that and might have influenced, you know, Ohioans who had seen it to influence their representatives and to tell their Ohio Board of Education members to adopt the resolution by Brendan Shea that says we will not change Title IX and and subject our girls and women to uh, these these extraordinary new measures. And and I'm just trying to figure out. I I agree with you. I think Dave Yost is a good guy. I think he's a pretty good attorney general. I think he's right on most of yeah, the things, but right. I want to know if he buried this and only sent it to Washington because he didn't want to send it, uh, put it out there, uh, you know, before the board of education meeting because it might impact his reelection chances. That's exactly right. And here's the problem it, with with so many people who are elected is is once they're in office, they get connected to the heroin IV tube. And then it's it's just so engulfing in their life about the reelection that you you lose the point of why you're there to begin with, right? So we have we have uh, some really good people that are in office, and, and then you don't even, you you won't even hear what's going on because if that really makes front pages right before an election, uh, well 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 then what what am I going to do? I can't get reelected. Right, but the, the risks need to be taken. So, I mean, if you look at strong leaders, and this is what's encouraging is, is they do arise, and this is why the church has to be involved. 
So if we remember back in, in the early days, the French observer came from across the pond to observe America's greatness. His response was, specifically, America's greatness is found in her pulpits that are flamed with righteousness, because that influences so many people. And then once the influence goes out, it will embolden uh, the people in office. And that's where we need to support them. I, I have a tendency to be critical, and, I, and I'm working on that, Bob. But to encourage these men to do that, so like I said, I, I just recently had many um, conversations with Frank LaRose concerning election integrity. And I think he's a good guy, too. But he, he needs to be strengthened and undergirded and underpinned uh, by the citizenry in or to encourage him to make that decision, because I realize he doesn't want to lose re-election. But so if the pulpits are shouting it out and bringing it to the masses of the people, then that will strengthen those. And then maybe Dave Yost would have, you know, submitted that to uh, the public a little earlier. And he might have been, you know, he might have been, he would have become our hero rather than the hider. Right. You know, so if we look at like the days of Rudy Giuliani back in New York, I mean, New York was an absolute mess before Rudy took it. It was, I mean... Brooklyn, the Bronx, Queens were just plagued with crime. And I don't know if you remember, there used to be, uh, in those areas, they had uh, homemade signs on cars. It was so bad in New York that they would make homemade 8x10 notebook paper right on there and paste it on the window. No radio. Because radios were stolen so often in New York that people would write in, we don't have a radio in our car. But then Rudy finally was bold enough to take the moves, and he straightened out New York. I mean, he cleaned it up within 10 years. Crime went down massively. It was a massive change in society for New York. And so this can happen at any time. So we can be encouraged, but what we need to do is we need people like yourself and then churches and pulpits and Christians to, to make as much noise as we can to encourage these um, you know, the elected officials to do what they do, which is happening. Because if you look at Frank LaRose's office, he is being bombarded so much so by the general public um, with FOIA requests and in public information requests. He had to um, adjourn a whole other committee, a whole other section of politics to, to, to deal with that. So you're making a huge difference, Bob, just by sounding it off and sounding it off. Uh, but the more of us that we have, the bigger it will get. Well, yeah, you know, I've got my congregation here that listens every day. You've got them that listen every week. Uh, and, and it is our job to sound off as best we can. I just only hope uh, that enough people take the messages that they get from us and share it with others. It's got to be spread among the flock, if you will. And I... I Probably shouldn't compare myself to you in that regard. I don't. I'm, I'm just using that as a uh, as a it's as a metaphor. Way, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a metaphor, not a legitimate congregation. I'm no pastor. I'm no priest. I'm not qualified. But uh, but yes, we do have to have those who listen to us follow and follow what we have to say. They have to share it with others to really have an impact, the kind of impact that we need. So, real quick, um, Pastor Jeff, in the minute or two that we have left here, because I wanted to do a generic, general discussion of the importance of these midterms and what has to be done, um, rather right. than a lot of specifics. But I want to ask you. I mean. The the fate of the country rests in the United States Senate. Um, Ted Cruz told me on the air on Friday that if the Democrats get 52 seats in the Senate, 
They have 50 now. If they just get 52 seats, it's all over. Because they will vote to eliminate the filibuster, and when the filibuster is gone, by simple majority vote, they can, indeed, uh, pass S-1, which will change voting laws forever. They can, indeed, um, legalize, uh, and, uh, and not legalize, uh, but uh, provide citizenship to 12 to 15 million illegal aliens. They can and will pack the Supreme Court until they get enough members to have a, a majority that they'll never lose again. They can and will make states out of D.C. and Puerto Rico, which will be four left-wing senators that well, again, make sure they never lose the majority again. This is how serious it is. So with that as in mind, Pastor Jeff, can you talk about J.D. Vance, and can you tell our listeners who may have people that they know who just aren't sure uh, if they're going to vote for J.D. Vance or if they're going to leave it blank because they don't trust him? Because I know they're out there. I talk to a lot of people who put their hands right. in the air when I asked that question on Saturday night. Um, there are a lot of people who are just saying, I don't like either one of my might, might not vote for anybody there. How dangerous that is for potentially this state and for this country. Uh, that is crucially dangerous. And, and that's why the, it, the, the alarm needs to be sounded this thrill. The, the ship is taking on water. And if we do let them get 52, we very well could lose the Republic. This is on a precipice that is larger than I don't think the average person even knows. So J.D. Vance is, is a definite, everyone needs to go out and vote. And actually, the best is voting on election day to overrun the system in case there's algorithms. But J.D. Vance definitely needs our support. And, and, and like you, I, I, he isn't my favorite candidate either. But here's going back to our, our sounding boards. If we have a bunch of Sam Adams making a lot of noise, the John Adams will do what's right. So even J.D. Vance, he's going to be now hooked up to the heroin if he gets elected. It's our job to make sure that we are making our voices known to him so that he becomes better at, at what his job can be. And he will. He, he, he will do that because he he's not uh, far left. You know, he's not, again, not my pick, but... Uh, these guys that uh, we need to support them wholeheartedly now. Uh, they're they're not the guy we would have primaried, but that's who we have. So we need to get behind them. We need to do exactly that. And um, and I, I'm going to say something too, a little stronger than what you than what you just did too. Uh, JD wasn't my first choice in the primary field, <clears throat> but then again, neither was Donald Trump in the primary field. And uh, as it turned right. out, that worked out pretty doggone well for this country with some accomplishments right. that I don't think anybody ever saw uh, coming. Um, and I have gotten to know J.D. Vance much, much better over the course of the last, you know, eight or nine months. And it, it, certainly at least since May in the primary and when, when he won the, uh, the nomination for the Republican uh, spot here. And I've gotten to know him so much better. And I can tell you now that I am not just, well, he won the primary and he's better than Ryan, so therefore, begrudgingly, I vote yay. Um, no, I am full-throatedly endorsing him. I believe in him, and I believe uh, what Eric Metaxas had to say the other night. Eric Metaxas is a strong man of faith, and he had J.D. on his radio program, On The Word. And, um, and, and he believes that J.D. is as authentic and as real as, uh, as it gets. And any... Uh, any reputation that he may have built beforehand should not be considered here because what he is now is authentic and real and a believer in uh, in, in this country and, well, in, and in what, what brought us here and what needs uh, what needs to be done to keep us here. Go ahead. 
No, you're exactly 100% right. But let's look at how that happened. J.D. Vance, for, for most of us, think in his historic, you know, in his record was, you know, flip-flop or anti-Trump. Right. But what, what brought him to the point now where we're not only holding our nose and voting for him, but we're actually in, endorsing him and going with him? And, and if you look at his testimony, a lot of it has to do with Jesus Christ. So something happened in his life. And we know that you only hear generally about Jesus through other Christians and through the gospel being taught, either in pulpits or on the street via Christians. Something happened in his life, and his testimony is that Jesus Christ changed his life. So what we may have now is a J.D. Vance from a couple of years ago to a new J.D. Vance that we have now, and it is, according to his testimony, because of the gospel. So that proves that if the churches want to remain silent, uh, then they will be guilty and uh, as not being the watchmen on the wall that they should be. That is a great point, and that's why I wanted to ask you about it, because you uh, you always bring a different element to it than I can. Pastor Jeff Toring, Liberty Valley Church. By the way, Pastor Jeff, super quick, because we're out of time here, we're very much looking forward to coming back to your church, Citizens for Free Speech, with a massive presentation featuring Tom DeWeese on November 16th. It's going to be live and in person at the church, but it's going to be streamed out to uh, CFFS uh, uh, members and volunteers and viewers all across the country. And I just want to say thank you in advance for letting us use the church and for supporting our efforts there on the, on behalf of the First Amendment. Absolutely. It's my pleasure, Bob. Thank you, Pastor Jeff. We'll talk to you again before that. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. All right, there's Jeff Toring at 1056. We'll take a time out here. Don't forget, on the other side of the news, Jack Windsor joins us. He's got a lot of very important work that they're covering Stories that they're covering at the Ohio Press Network. Uh, we're going to talk to him about the J.D. Vance situation with uh, Tim Ryan. We're going to talk to him about what happened, uh, this uh, Dave Yost story as well. And what about the CDC and Mike DeWine? CDC says they're going to recommend that all states require COVID shots for children to go to school. Is Mike DeWine going to allow that in Ohio? Jack Windsor may have the answer. That's coming up on Always Right Radio, AM 1420, The Answer. This hour of Always Right Radio is brought to you by Keeping Medicare Simple and The Floor King. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead, who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis, didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. is Always Right Radio with Bob Frantz on AM 1420, The Answer. Yeah, President Reagan is right. There is a point beyond which they must not advance, and that point is the 52-vote threshold in the United States Senate. 
Ted Cruz laid it out better than anybody else has, literally. If uh, they get 52 seats, the nation is lost, and it's not lost just until the next cycle. It's lost, period. Cannot be regained. It is that serious. With 52 votes, they abolish the filibuster and then simple majority rules to get S-1 passed, the federal takeover of all elections, to get uh, 15 million people on a path to citizenship, uh, to get um, uh, Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. as states, to get the court packed with enough leftist judges that will never get another decision again. Literally, if they pass, or excuse me, get past that, that mark, that 52-senator mark, we are done. Hope people realize the importance of this election. Welcome as we continue into hour number three now at 11 minutes past 11 o'clock on this uh, Wednesday. It's the 26th morning of the 10th month of the year of our Lord, 22. Uh, 2022. Uh, and that means it's time for our regular Wednesday commentator. He is our good friend Jack Windsor, the uh, editor and founder of the Ohio Press Network. Uh, Jack Windsor, good to have you back. How are you? Bob, I'm super fantastic. Thanks for being with me today. It's always a pleasure to be here with you in the AM 1420 family. Thank you, Jack. I appreciate that always. Uh, man, there's so much ground to cover here. I, instead of starting with the races, um, which, uh, you know, you've been doing a lot of great work on, you and your team. I'm going to talk about the CDC because this just kind of came down. Um, you and I spoke yesterday about this uh, a couple of days ago, or maybe it was the end of last week. Maybe it was Friday. I can't even remember anymore. But Rochelle Walensky announced that the CDC had voted unanimously to recommend the addition of COVID-19 shots to the regular um, uh, childhood immunization schedule for MMR and, 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 and polio vaccines and so on and so forth. Uh, they want to add COVID-19 to that. The question ever since that happened has been, can they mandate that? And the answer is no. The CDC cannot mandate anything. However, they can make that recommendation, and then the federal government may, based on that recommendation, use their power to coerce, in other words, threaten states uh, with a loss of federal dollars if they don't do what the CDC recommended here. So the question becomes, what are the states going to do? And more specifically, what is our state going to do? And you might have the answer uh, from Governor Mike DeWine. What do you got? Well, first, it's not a pretend scenario that you mentioned with respect to the federal government putting pressure on states. It happened with masks on buses. We remember that very recently. It's now happening with Title IX changes and school lunch money, although one court has tried to halt that. But uh, I digress. So DeWine and Husted uh, responded to the CDC adding those COVID-19 shots to the child vaccination schedule. And real quickly, Bob, for context, let me tell you this. I published this story Friday night into Saturday morning. By Sunday morning, it was the top story for the week on our site. And that's saying something because we had previously released a very in-depth story about what was going on in schools with their policies. So the issue is vibrant. Parents care. That being said, let's take a look at what some of the other folks around the country have said, and then we'll kind of meander into, I think, the crux of this issue. Okay. Uh, but the governor of uh, Virginia, Glenn Youngkin, said COVID-19 mandates should be in the rearview mirror. The decision to vaccinate a child against COVID-19 is for Virginia parents uh, to make about what's best for them and their family. We will not adhere to these uh, CDC mandates, and Virginia parents matter. Ron DeSantis said, as long as I'm kicking and screaming, there will be no COVID shot mandates for your kids. Now, let's look at what Governor Mike DeWine said, and I think this is why the article uh, was viral, uh, because he weighed in with us. I'm not sure that he made other public comments before this on the matter. But I asked his press team, what will the governor do, if anything, to either promote the jabs 
in order for kids to enroll in school or discourage schools from requiring them? So that was the question. Here's the answer. There are no COVID-19 vaccine mandates in Ohio. That's it. So that's it. Now some pre- pre- Present that. tense. Present tense. There are no COVID vaccines in our vaccine mandates in Ohio. Present tense. That that doesn't say a whole heck of a lot, does it? Well, it doesn't answer the question directly. It gives an answer that states there are no COVID nineteen vaccine mandates in Ohio. Well, I knew that beforehand. Yeah, that means it's not. It's question. not just not direct. It's do? not an answer at all. It's an ignoring of the question. Will you follow the CDC guidelines and require this? There are no COVID va- va- vaccine mandates. That that's ignoring the question. That's doing a KJP. That's what that is. Well, some context on that, and and maybe. It does have some weight, but I think there are still some issues that readers have, and I'll tell you what those are. Okay. So I talked to State Senator Andrew Brenner, who told me right away that Ohio law spells out vaccines that are mandated. In order for kids to attend school, COVID isn't on that list, and therefore it can't be mandated. Uh, John Husted said something similar. He said the CDC can make recommendation if they want, but they can't tell Ohio schools to require a COVID vaccine. The General Assembly makes Ohio law and we have no COVID vaccine requirement in our state, period. So the question is, well, will that become law? Will they write that in? Uh, Ohio Senate President Matt Huffman uh, said, uh, and he's a Republican from Lima, by the way, he said, uh, regarding a recent recommendation by the CDC that children receive COVID-19 vaccination, I want to reassure the people of Ohio that I am committed to making sure parents have the final say in their children's medical decisions. Now, he went on and included a link in that tweet where he made that comment. And uh, that, that link went to a statement where he said, the COVID-19 vaccine is not part of Ohio's childhood vaccination requirements, and I am not in favor of adding it. The Ohio Senate has no intention of making a change to law. Um, so, Bob, reading between the lines, is there an effort to put it into law? Perhaps. The feedback we're getting from our readers is this. Well, there wasn't a mask mandate either, but my kids still had to wear a mask last year, and I had to jump through hoops to get an exemption. Some parents had to spend money and time pursuing you know, their cause for that matter in court. So the concern we're hearing is this, to really break it down. Great that it isn't mandated, but are there forced compliance tactics that are going to result in schools attempting to force my kid uh, to get stuck in order to participate in in-person education? Well, to be truthful, Jack, I'm not satisfied with any of those answers, including Huffman's. You know, he may say, I personally am going to do everything I can uh, to make sure that parents have the last say, if I'm, rec- if I'm quoting you right and what you just said. Um, what does that mean? Because the, you know what they could do? They could require it and then say, parents, it's up to you. You have the last say. Get them that shot or take them out. Go, go homeschool and do it yourself. Put them in a private school. There, you have your last say. That doesn't do anything for me. None of those statements do anything for me, and they should not give any parent confidence that they're not going to be required to have their kids jabbed with this experimental toxin, this messenger RNA shot that is potentially very dangerous and that is absolutely not uh, effective in preventing anybody from getting COVID-19 anyway, uh, which they, of course, have come around to admit well after the fact, well after the development of these shots. So, so Jack, from what you just described, um, not Houston, not Brenner, not Huffman, none of them really gave us the answer we're looking for, which is, no, we will not allow the federal government to require those things. They're not going to make that statement. Sometimes the answer is in the answer, right? Sometimes reading between the lines provides the context 
Now, one one state lawmaker did tell me this, that uh, Republican caucuses had circled the wagons and began talking almost immediately about how to uh, ensure that COVID vaccines are not mandatory for kids to go to school. So they are having that discussion. Whether something will happen in lame duck session, I don't know. Um, but it's certainly on the top of the radar. All right. Fair enough. Uh, that's... Um yeah, I want I want every Ohio voter to know this. I want everyone to understand exactly what's being done here. Um, that we've seen the federal government, you pointed it out, already using their heavy hand by saying we will make your poor kids starve. No reduced lunches or no free lunches uh, coming from the federal government. We're cutting those funds if you don't. Uh, um, expand Title IX to include gender identity and put girls in, uh, in, in harm's way in terms of competition and in terms of private spaces and so forth. They've already threatened money that way. If you don't think they'll threaten federal money to make sure that everybody gets shots when they don't need them, with a population, a segment of the population, which is children, young children, which is just so minuscule the threat that COVID might provide to them, uh, if you don't think that they're willing to make that threat, uh, then I don't think people are paying attention. Uh, Jack, let's move on to topic number two. <clears throat> Speaking of those Title IX changes, yesterday I received a copy at the same, right around the same time you did, of a letter that was written by the Attorney General of this state um, to the Secretary of Education at the federal level, Miguel Cardona, and it essentially said from Dave Yost that uh, the state of Ohio is going to push back on any Title IX changes. Uh, the expansion of Title IX to gender identity, and it was 33 pages of reasons why. I thought it was pretty mm-hmm. doggone good. However, this statement, apparently, according to the letterhead, or the date on the on it under the letterhead was written, this letter was written on September 12th. Jack, why are you just finding out about it? Why am I just finding out about it? Why didn't Dave Yost send this letter to the plane dealer, to the Columbus Dispatch, Cincinnati Inquirer, Toledo Blade, and on and on and on, so that every Ohioan knows that we're not going to stand for this? This is where I stand, because that might have had an impact on things like the resolution presented by Brendan Shea before the Ohio Board of Education. Why is this written on September 12th, but being made uh, public, or we're finding out about it on October 25 yesterday? Bob, those are all super fantastic questions. I can only answer the one regarding me. I don't know if Dave Yost sent this to somebody else, whether that be Cleveland.com, The Plain Dealer, which I'm sure you guys are listening. How you doing out there? Thanks for tuning in. We appreciate the audience. Um, but listen, I reached out to the Ohio Attorney General's office on October 3rd, and my question was, hey, is the AG going to weigh in on this? This is a pretty important matter uh, regarding Title IX. Because he did weigh in on the withholding of lunch money. My question to his press team was, what is he going to do about parents' rights? What is he going to do about the privacy of students and uh, gender ideology in schools? And the comment that I got was, well, I don't think he's going to weigh in at all. So imagine my surprise when I received a letter dated September 12th that is, I'm going to give you my opinion here, it it is one of the most uh, thorough explanations that I've read in a long time about why an administrative rule uh, lacks authority and why it's dangerous. In that letter, um, you know, I'm going to, I'm not going to bury the lead on this. I think one of the most <clears throat> profound things I read was, uh, you know, said the department's eradication of sex-based distinctions for primary education is harmful and confusing to the point of abuse, particularly without parental consent. 
The proposed rule would require participation consistent with a person's gender identity in all education programs or activities that receive federal financial assistance, not just secondary or post-secondary activities. This means male students who identify as girls and female students who identify as boys must be permitted to so identify at school that parents, not schools, are responsible for the upbringing of their young children, particularly when it comes to deeply personal and emotional questions. The proposed rule strips parents of their right to raise their boys as boys and girls as girls. It bars schools from respecting the parents' wish to treat their children in accordance with their biological sexes. Um, that's profound. That would have been really meaningful for members of that State Board of Education to understand, I think, when they wrestled with Brendan Shea's uh, resolution just a week or two ago. And um, it, it's sad to me that this uh, hadn't received, uh, you know, uh, exposure in the public eye. Jack, have you spoken to A.G. Yost about this at any point? Um, so I have not talked with him personally. I did have a quick uh, text exchange with his communications director this morning, and I said, essentially, what gifts? We talked on October 3rd, and, uh, you know, check my math, but I think that's after September 12th, and you indicated that there wasn't going to be a statement, yet here is this extremely thorough uh, letter that's very powerful. Why wasn't it shared? The comment that I received back was, uh, hmm, I didn't know. So, whoa, 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 um, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. The, the, the aide or assistant or whatever from Yost's office. No, the director of communication. Director of communication did not know that the letter had been written? What does he mean when he according says, I my, did not know? According to my text exchange, um, and I have my phone to my ear, otherwise I would put you on speaker. Put and, me on speaker. You know, I want to hear text, it directly. But, I want to see, I want, no, seriously, put, I, I know we don't normally do speaker on radio, okay. but do it though. Do okay. it and read, read to me specifically. I want to know what he means when he says, did not know. Yes. Because if okay, the director so of the, yeah, if the director of so communications did not know the letter was being written, then my goodness gracious, what does that say yeah. about his job? If he did not know uh, that it wasn't being sent to or, who, or to whom it was being sent, that's another issue. But go ahead, Jack. So my my text was I'm confused when we talked on October third. I asked if AG Yost would weigh in on Title IX changes, particularly in schools. He said you didn't think so, but I have a letter to Secretary Miguel Cardone at U.S. At US Department of Education from Yost on behalf of Ohio and 18 other states, on the matter, dated September 12th. The, the response was, huh, this is not the first time a reporter knew something before me. My bad. That was not by design. I hope you know and believe that. This is not the first time that a reporter knew something before me? You're in charge of the, the AG's communications, and you don't know that he wrote a 33-page communication to go to the federal government? And you didn't know that where else it might be sent? You didn't recommend or discuss or become privy to questions as to whether or not it should be sent to the press in the state of Ohio so the state of Ohio's citizens knew where the AG stood on this massively important uh, uh, you know, change in, in Title IX uh, um, uh, structure? I, I'm blown away by that. My response? Bob was, you know, I, I try to be kind. I understand. Sometimes I have a hard time, you know, keeping my own house in order. I have a daughter 
And with Whitney, you know, uh, she has two kids, so what is that, five of us together? Sometimes it's challenging. I get that the director of communications is part of a, a massive organization, so, you know, I chalk it up and say, hey, I get it. You know, you work with a massive organization, and, and maybe it slipped through the cracks. Um, but it's a 33-page letter. It, it would have been nice to know. It's a 33-page letter written on behalf of the people of Ohio and 18 other states. Uh, that can't slip through the cracks. That's a boulder. Boulders don't fit through cracks. That's crazy to me. So last thing Touché. on this, Touché. last thing on this, Jack Windsor, <laughs> last thing on this uh, is 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 the governor. We we've kind of yeah. you and I have both discussed this, and I've criticized him and uh, Yost uh, about this separately and at the same time uh, in in the last several weeks. Why hasn't the governor spoken up on this? Because the governor wrote a letter to the Obama administration mm-hmm. to the AG Loretta Lynch about bathroom uh, policies, uh, boys going into girls' bathrooms. Same same transgender issue six years ago in 2016, saying you're not gonna we're not gonna let here in the state of Ohio the federal government run roughshod over us and tell us how to handle these very sensitive bathroom issues you can't force us to put boys in girls bathrooms uh we will fight you on this but he hasn't said a word about it now that he's the actual leader of the state Mm -hmm. yeah so there are a couple of points there and i want to try to you know march through these pretty quickly because i know we're limited on time Uh, but first of all you're right he did write a letter in 2016 to the obama administration saying no stay out of our business jack 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 Jack, hold on a second you're not going to be able to march that fast uh and uh, and uh, you're not nick chubb you're not fast enough to do that so let me put you on hold (laughs) let me put you on hold and i'll ask you to march through those points on the other side of the news can you do that i sure can Thank you, Jack. I appreciate that, Jack Windsor. In fact, it's good that Jack Windsor is going to stick around for another segment because we've got an announcement to make, too, which we'll do on the other side. Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. It's not talk show hosts, and it's not reporters or editors or whatever. It's just two guys talking about what matters most to this country. The fact that we might be able to pull in some big-name guests to join us is uh, is an added bonus. It really is. And, Bob, I'm excited. Thanks for, for choosing me for that endeavor, and there's a lot more to come. It's uh, going to be an awful lot of fun. Talking Smack with Bob and Jack, first episode will be live on uh, Tuesday evening, 7 o'clock. I'll be telling you more about that between now and then. And, and again, it will be uploaded to all of your podcast uh, viewing uh, platforms. Jack Windsor, thank you, my friend. We'll talk to you soon. You betcha. Talk to you later. There it is. Jack Windsor joining us. That's going to take us to the end of this broadcast. But again, don't forget, after O'Reilly, uh, live on AM 1420 The Answer, you get Charlie Kirk. But I'll be live over on uh, the Salem News Channel hosting the Dennis Prager Show. Hopefully you can tune in. We'll see you tomorrow. Be well, be safe, and stay free. Bye-bye. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.